Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Kia ora and a big welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Later on tonight, we'll catch up with the winners of this year's Marsden Medal and the Hill Tinsley Medal. But first, here's how engineer Mark Jumi at the University of Canterbury got involved in forensics. He's an engineer who specialises in fluid dynamics, which means he's interested in the way gases and liquids move. He usually works on industrial applications, such as the way fuel behaves in a spray. Then, one day, there was a knock on his door. I never really expected to be doing this, but one day a gentleman came to my office and uh, said, I've heard that you've done some work on fuel droplets, on measuring the size and the velocities of fuel droplets. And he said, well, could you do the same for blood droplets? It turned out he was from ESR. That was uh, Dr Michael Taylor of ESR. And uh, he's been uh, researching in blood spatter uh, and bloodstain evidence for years. So you said, yes, I deal with liquids. And then did he have some specific questions that he wanted answered? He wanted to build much more physics into how forensic scientists interpret bloodstain patterns. The interpretation of bloodstain patterns has been based on rules of thumb which have been built up over time. And most of those rules are, are quite accurate and they yield quite important information about where the victim was and some closes to where perhaps the assailant was and how many blows were struck and what kind of weapon was used and things like that, which is all very useful. But a lot of the investigators who were going to crime scenes and looking at uh, bloodstain patterns didn't have a very clear idea about the physics of of how these patterns were formed. Uh, And that could make uh, giving testimony in court difficult uh, under cross-examination, ask questions about could this happen, could that happen. And, uh, and he felt that uh, those questions could be answered much uh, more accurately and much more clearly with better understanding. We put a course together uh, in which I, I put my knowledge of the physics of how droplets were created and what affects their, uh, their trajectory, the path that they follow as they fly through the air. And then what happens to them as they strike a a surface, so they might splash or spread. Um, Those processes determine the shape of the stain, which sometime later an investigator comes along and and sees and tries to to interpret. And there was quite a lot already known. uh, Droplet impact on surfaces has been studied for years because it's really important for things like cooling you know, if you're spraying water over something to cool it down. It's really important for things like printing. Uh, the printing industry has done a lot of work on uh, generating droplets of, of particular sizes and working out what happens when they hit the surface of a piece of paper, for example. Can you simply explain to me some of the, those physics principles that you need to consider when you're thinking about fluids? When you consider what happens when a droplet of, of any fluid hits a surface, so it could be a it could be a raindrop hitting the ground or it could be a drop of blood hitting a wall at a crime scene. 
what happens is um, the droplets, roughly spherical, roughly ball-shaped, uh, when it strikes the surface, and it spreads out over that surface. Um, and the degree to which it spreads and then whether it spreads evenly and makes a nice circular uh, pattern on the wall or whether it splashes and makes uh, fingers or breaks up into smaller droplets depends on how fast it's going, how large the droplet is, but it also depends on physical properties of the, of the fluid, so it depends on the density. Uh, and density is something that doesn't change very much, but it depends on surface tension and surface tension is something that's very different if you're dealing with say water and raindrops or or blood the surface tension uh, values are quite different and the surface tension value of blood varies a little bit from person to person um, it also depends on the viscosity the you know what people often call the the thickness of the fluid uh, uh, something like honey has got very high viscosity uh, compared to water. The viscosity of blood's quite different to that of water, and the viscosity of blood even changes during a splashing event. It changes according to how fast the fluid is uh, is changing shape. And the viscosity of blood changes from person to person. It, it depends quite a lot on your red blood cell count. If you've got a lot of red blood cells, so if you've been... Uh, spending a lot of time at high altitude, you built up your red blood cell count. Your blood's quite viscous. If you're anemic, then uh, not so many red blood cells, and it's, it's quite thin. So what those forensic experts are having to do is they arrive at a crime scene, there is blood splattered, say, on a wall, maybe partly on a floor, and they're having to calculate backwards things like what? Things like where the blood droplets originated from, because that, that's where the wound was and that tells you where the victim was. And, and it's calculating backwards. That, that, that's a really important thing because it's very easy in physics to calculate forwards in time, to say, if we know how big the droplet is and what direction it's moving in and how fast it's moving, we can tell very accurately where it's going to end up. But if you say, we know that it hit the wall at this point, well, there's many different paths that can actually lead it there, and you don't know which one it followed. So calculating backwards is, is far more difficult. That uh, really belongs to a class of problems called inverse problems, and they're always harder than uh, problems where you're considering the forwards direction. So forensic scientists get around this. when they If they look at a... Uh, a pattern of blood drops on the wall, which they know has been caused by uh, blood drops travelling through the air, they trace back to the origin by considering many of those individual stains, many of those individual blood droplets, and tracing back possible trajectories and seeing where the majority of them cross. And that gives them a reasonable estimate of where the victim was. Which would be simple if there was, for example, a single bullet, like a single wound that splattered blood, but you might have a whole lot of overlying splatters as well. So it's the idea that if you just traced enough of them back, you'd work out, well, some of that blood came from this point, but some of it came from a different point. That, that's right, and a lot of crime scenes are very dynamic. Uh, victims often uh, don't just sit there, they, uh, they move around. Uh, that, that complicates things. But uh, actually one of the most difficult problems that forensic scientists encounter at some crime scenes is telling different types of bloodstain apart. So, for example, you might have the kind of bloodstain that we've been talking about where you've got a victim who's, who's bleeding and, and either a, a bullet 
or um, uh, a blunt weapon has been uh, propelling droplets into the air and they form a pattern on a wall or something. Uh, that's called impact spatter. But particularly when the droplets are really small, it's very difficult to tell an impact spatter p- pattern from uh, other possibilities, like, for example, uh, if you've got a, a wound in your uh, nose and mouth and you're, you're, you're breathing out or, or you're shouting and you can cause uh, droplets to um, be carried out with your breath, they can be quite small and sometimes very difficult to tell from other, other types of spatter. ESR are actually doing a lot of work in this area at the moment uh, of making uh, different patterns, uh, fortunately using, uh, using substitutes. Uh, they use uh, pig's blood and they use uh, synthetic alternatives. Which mimic the viscosity and the, the properties of yes, the blood. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And that proved to be quite an important thing early on uh, is that they found that pigs are much more variable than humans, that their red blood cell count varies from about 20 to 70 percent, whereas humans vary from about 35 to 45 percent. So uh, we are <laughs> we're much more alike with each other than, uh, than pigs are. So what have you found most interesting thinking about the physics of blood splatter, for example? As an engineer, uh, I think the pro- part of the problem that I've found most interesting is how you control your experiments. So building machines which give you, if you want to make an impact into a pool of blood, machines which give you an impact at the same speed every time. Another thing we've looked at is um, is uh, tissue properties where uh, we're looking at gunshot wounding and, and particularly gunshot wounding to the brain. To do experiments on inert materials... And if you go onto YouTube, you, you can find a lot of videos of bullets going into blocks of gelatin. Gelatin is a kind of standard material which is thought to mimic uh, the behaviour of muscle and of brain tissue. We did some comparisons with lamb and sheep brain and, and found that gelatin really isn't a good match for, uh, for that. Um, I had a student who uh, had, in his youth, he'd... Um, he came from Iran and he cooked a lot of lamb's brain. That's a delicacy. And uh, he was working with some gelatin one day and he said to me that uh, this gelatin really doesn't feel like brain. And funnily enough, recently I heard something very similar from a military surgeon who has treated a lot of head wounds and said, you know, gelatin really doesn't feel mechanically like brain. So my student who, who'd done the cooking said, uh, well, you know, I've... Uh, I've cooked puddings which are more brain-like than this. Uh, and that became a major topic of his PhD, was to make a synthetic material which behaved a lot more like brain. And he used some of his uh, pudding experience to do that and used, for example, corn flour to control the uh, consistency. Thanks, Mark. And that was Mark Jumi, a mechanical engineer at the University of Canterbury. Kate Fakaronga Mai, Kwe Kito Tato, Al Horihori, Kitareo Irirangi, or Aotearoa. You're with me, Alison Balance, on Our Changing World, and now the New Zealand Association of Scientists awards four medals each year. The Beatrice Hill Tinsley Award recognises outstanding research by someone aged under 43 years, and this year's recipient is Christian Hartinger. I'm a chemist working at the University of Auckland and I'm working on the development of new anti-cancer drugs. My lab develops inorganic compounds 
That means we, we have metal centers in our compounds, which is quite uncommon if you, if you look at the usual drugs you find in your local pharmacy. So what sort of metals? When I think of metal, I think of something like iron. Um, there are people working on iron, but we mostly focus on ruthenium, on osmium, rhodium, iridium, and platinum as well. And it's specifically those platinum complexes that have been used for more than 40 years now in the treatment of, of cancer patients. And in fact, nearly every second cancer patient who we treat uh, with chemotherapeutics would receive one of those platinum compounds. So why metals? Metals behave very differently to your standard organic compounds. They have several advantages. So for example, you can change the structure very easily. You create a lot of structural diversity and they can undergo reactions uh, which other compounds wouldn't be able to undergo and therefore they present an advantage as compared to other compounds. Now they are not, of course, not the only compounds used in cancer treatment, but as I said, they are quite widely used. Yes, I'm familiar with, with more organic molecules. I spoke to someone recently who was a carbohydrate chemist creating organic drugs, which begs the question for me, are your drugs entirely made of metal or are they metal embedded or wrapped in something else? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we do. So we put the metal in, into the centre of our molecule, but then we attach all different types of what we call ligands to those metal centers. And some of those ligands, they are bound quite tightly to the metal center and they would stay connected to the metal center even if we give the drug to a patient. But others would undergo reactions and would be released and replaced by biomolecules, for example, that we consider as the targets of our compounds and this interaction with the target, with the biological targets, eventually will lead to cancer cells ideally dying. So we use a lot of organic chemistry in my lab. We, we as I said, we put the, those ligands on, and they could, just as you said, they could be carbohydrate compounds as well. So we have reported a few years back a study where we attached some of those carbohydrates to our metal centers and in order to achieve a more selective treatment of cancer patients with our metal compounds by improving the delivery of our compounds to the tumor. So those ligands, that the delivery mechanism, but it's the metal itself that deals to the cancer cell? Exactly. That's one of the major themes we are following in my lab. So we, we develop compounds that in one way or another accumulate to a higher degree in a tumor or they interact with a biological target that is present of in a higher concentration in a tumor as compared to a normal cell. So we use different carriers, we use vectors in order to deliver our metal, which is the active component in our molecules. So in order to deliver those metals to a tumor, we attach different groups that eventually will uh, help the metal to 
to be present in a higher concentration, ideally. Why are we doing this? We know that uh, cancer patients often experience severe side effects, but if we can direct the anti-cancer active molecule more selectively to the tumor or, or tumor cell, that means that we can reduce the side effects um, in cancer patients. Why the kinds of metals that you use? Why that group of metals? If you look at the table of elements, there are quite a few of those. So all different types of metals have been studied in the past as cancer treatments. Uh, what's interesting about the group we have chosen is that ruthenium, osmium, rhodium, iridium, platinum. And for each of those metals, there's now literature precedence that shows us that actually these compounds, these metal centers have biological activity. So what's been your most, I don't know, interesting finding so far? Oh, that's, that's always the hardest question to answer. So over the years, of course, we have, we have made many, many contributions to science and the perspective changes over the time. So m- most recently, one direction I really like in our studies are compounds which are based on a ligand system, which we call the uh, pyridine carbothioamides. What's special about this compound type is they form very stable complexes with ruthenium and osmium so far is what we've studied. And they can the compounds are so stable that we can give them orally. So we've just very recently published a paper where we could show that these compounds reduce tumor volume by more than 50% when given orally. And if you look at anti-cancer metal complexes, there are not many out there that show such, uh, such activity. So we consider this a very promising finding. And just a few weeks ago, we actually uh, reported a paper where we identified the molecular target of this compound type uh, as a protein that's very important in, in cancer progression. So do you enjoy working at this interface where you're doing, in a sense, pure chemistry, but that's also very applied at the same time? Yeah, surely. I mean, multidisciplinary workspace is, I think, what everyone uh, aims for these days. And when you do drug development, obviously, you're really at the interface between chemistry, biology, medicine, pharmacy, and by sitting at that interface, you can't be an expert in everything. So that forces you virtually to form collaborations with other people, with other specialists in their area. And that's that really gives you a very different, very interesting perspective on your work when you look at what other people can contribute to a research area and how you complement each other. Have you created any successful drugs yet, any that have gone to market? Uh, None that have gone to market, but I've been involved in the past in the development of a ruthenium compound, which is currently in in clinical trials. Uh, We have done a lot of work in the bioanalytical area, so that's 
my second area of expertise. We're not only synthesizing new compounds, we are also studying uh, very carefully the modes of action of, of our compounds. And this includes the development of new analytical methods so that we can actually trace our metal complexes in biological systems and see how they react in presence of different biomolecules. Thanks, Christian. And Christian Hartinger is at the University of Auckland. He's the winner of the Beatrice Hill Tinsley Award, which last year became the first New Zealand Science Medal to be named after a woman. And it's great to see that this year the New Zealand Association of Scientists has added to that list by renaming its Science Communicator Medal the Cranwell Medal. Now, Lucy Cranwell was a botanist who specialised in ancient pollen. Along with her close friend, Lucy Moore, she studied botany at the University of Auckland. In 1929, when she was just 21, she became the first botany curator at Auckland Museum. She later moved to the United States, where she worked at Harvard University and the University of Arizona. Among her other awards, she was the first woman to receive the Royal Society Te Aparangi's Hector Medal. Now, just to remind you how small the New Zealand science community can be, I once had the pleasure of meeting Lucy Cranwell on one of her visits back home, which was a great honour. And in another nice connection, our next medal winner, the University of Otago's Carolyn Burns, who's been awarded the Marsden Medal, new astronomer Beatrice Hill Tinsley. Oh yes, that goes back a long way, but it's, and it's a very tenuous connection. But in the days when I was doing my BSc honours at the University of Canterbury, Beatrice, although we knew her as Beetle, was doing a master's in uh, physics at the University of Canterbury. And one of the requirements for sort of postgraduate um, courses at that stage in New Zealand and also in universities overseas was that you had to do a um, requirement for uh, reading knowledge of a foreign language and German was the one that was usually chosen in the sciences at uh, University of Canterbury. And so we were doing science German together. But that's when I sort of realised what an extraordinary person uh, Beatrice was and also what, what an, a huge intellect she had because while we were struggling to come to grips with the sort of various names in German and learning our, our basic German, Beatrice would come into the class and she had already sort of mastered everything and was already two jumps ahead of the lecturer. I mean, she just had a capacity and a knowledge and an ability that was quite extraordinary, and yet she was so humble with it. So, you know, really that's my association with this extraordinary uh, woman who went on to achieve so much in her short life, yeah. Well, she went on to study the stars. Tell me about what you went on to study. Well, I went on to study initially a combination of both freshwater and marine studies, but then subsequently specialised in freshwater in a field that is known in most of the rest of the world as um, limnology. That comes from the Greek word limne, meaning um, standing water, but is known in New Zealand now as uh, freshwater sciences. Now, what have you focused on in particular? I think it's zooplankton. It is. It's the ecology of the small organisms in, in the water 
that are in the pelagic zone, in other words, in the suspended zone. It is the plankton, but it also includes a lot of the um, microbial organisms, microbial food web, that most people tend to overlook as part of the plankton. So it's not only the um, small plants, the phytoplankton in the lakes, but it's also a lot of the other um, components of the lake water, small protozoa and um, heterotrophic and, you know, nanoflagellates and bacteria and things like that. And then small crustacea, which is primarily known as the um, zooplankton to most people, uh, rotifers, and then onwards and up into the higher food chain, which ends in most lakes with the fish. So they're a very important part of the food web, extremely important part of the food web and it's these trophic interactions the sort of feeding interactions who eat whom um, within this very very complex um, well two food webs in many ways there's the microbial food web and then there's the more classic food web that goes from the plants through to the um, small crustacean plankton um, to the fish yeah through that whole food web and the dynamics of that and how they alter and the effects of land use on the water quality and the dynamics of the functioning of those food webs are what have been my main focus. You've looked a lot at zooplankton in the big lakes down in the South Island. Yes, our big, deep, many of them iconic lakes in the South Island have always been a source of fascination. Not only are they interesting from the point of view of you know, their depth and the whole sort of dynamics, the physics and chemistry of the functioning of those lakes, but also the biology as well, because they contain a lot of the tiny microorganisms, the small cyanobacteria in the water that also occur in the oceans of the world and contribute so much to the world's oxygen production, actually, because of their photosynthetic activity. So what's really interesting about these lakes, then? I imagine that they're quite a different place to study zooplankton. I'm thinking also of zooplankton in the ocean, of course. Yes, they are very interesting because of, you know, their whole contribution to the productivity of the lakes and oceans. But also in New Zealand, um, some of them have got some particular sort of outstanding um, characteristics. I mean, they're not unique, but they are of interest because they're more common in New Zealand. And that is the fact that we have a rather depauperate, is how one might explain it. In other words, species poor zooplankton, this is the crustacean zooplankton, relative to that in lakes overseas. And it also refers to some of the uh, feeding activities of the fish. For example, we don't have a large number of obligate um, piscivorous fish. These are fish that eat other fish. We don't have the bass and the pike and those fish that eat other fish. We just have the sort more like the salmon and the sort of herring type that eat zooplankton. Nor do we have the carnivorous zooplankton. In other words, the predatory zooplankton, these are crustaceans, predatory crustaceans that eat 
other crustaceans, and, you know, the filter feeding ones and the more common calanoid copepods and things. We, we don't have the carnivorous ones. That means that our food chains are simplified and to some extent I think it has helped sort out some of the major interactions that are occurring because we're dealing with a simpler food chain where there aren't these other interactions that can confound, you know, the pathways that we see. And that's helped us, I think, sort out things. Also, our deep southern lakes in particular are very nutrient poor and that increases their sensitivity to even very, very small amounts of nutrients which means that um, their susceptibility to effects of eutrophication, particularly in the more sheltered bays and things like that, is likely to be enhanced. And indeed, we've been having some indications of um, deterioration in water quality, which is occurring in some of our deep southern lakes, and that's of great interest to me. What about issues like invasive species? Because... In the last decade or so, we, we've had Didymo. I've been hearing about lake snow and some of the southern lakes as well. Mm-hmm. We are getting changes wrought by invasive species. In particular, the two that I have been looking at most recently are two species of the water flea, the crustacean Daphnia. Both have arrived um, from North America, according to the um, genetics and those are two that are in the South Island. There's also another one in the North Island, although it may also be getting down to the South Island now. And these have a tendency to reproduce very quickly, and they also have a tendency to potentially outcompete our native species, the Daphnia carinata, now called Daphnia thompsoni. And this has knock-on effects that really we haven't even got to grips with yet because there are all sorts of subsequent ecosystem repercussions of having large numbers of these invasive species um, present in our lakes. We're only beginning to look at that. There's one possible benefit of those invasive species, or at least one or two of them that I've been investigating, and that is the potential to use some of them, because they build up large numbers, as biomanipulation, water quality control um, possibilities. Now, let me explain. First of all, the phytoplankton blooms, the algal blooms that are causing problems in a lot of lakes, are caused as a result of you know increases in nutrients and things like that. Now, sometimes you get a situation in lakes, particularly in shallow lakes, where you simply can't reduce the nutrients enough and quickly enough to stop those algal blooms. And you can't even remove the nutrients that are present in the sediments um, at the bottom of the lake because there are just so many of them that you couldn't do it and you couldn't dispose of the material and whatever. So you're left with a situation that you want to reduce the nutrient inflow in order to reduce the algal blooms, but um, you're stymied. Well, at least in the short term. And so um, it's been suggested and has been used successfully overseas. You use the situation of the fact that these um, 
Daphnia, these water fleas, eat algae to increase the numbers of the water fleas so that they potentially can eat down the phytoplankton blooms um, before they get away and cause water quality problems. And our native Daphnia has never really been present in sufficiently large numbers or eat sufficiently large number of um, algae that it could be used as a potential biomanipulation tool. But the possibility exists now that we could use one of these invasive species, the Daphnia pulex, which um, can build up huge numbers at times, in order to reduce the algal blooms and improve water quality in some of our shallow lakes in New Zealand where we are having those problems. That's a very interesting idea, using one problem species to solve another problem exactly. species. It just so happens that it is a problem invader here. In other countries, it's not an invader. Obviously, water quality is a big issue. It's media headlines all the time. Yes. What do you think? Well, I, I think we do need to do as much as we can and as soon as possible because it is not going to go away. It is just going to get worse. Thanks, Carolyn. And that was Carolyn Burns, Emeritus Professor in the Zoology Department at the University of Otago. And she was awarded the Marsden Medal for a lifetime of outstanding service to science. And that's our show for tonight. But you can listen to those stories again or find our contact details on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Thanks, as always, for listening. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.